This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Tena koto etefano. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Eramon. How's everybody doing? Um, hey, if you have any thoughts uh, on our podcast, uh, on the authors, whatever we talk about, please do let me know. You can find the details to contact me in the show notes. Well, today we are talking to Peter Mehana about his new book, Privilege in Perpetuity, Exploding a Pakeha Myth. Now, Peter is from Te Ihu o Te Waka Maui and is of Nati Kuya, Rangitane, Nati Apakite Rato, and Kaitahu descent. He's also a senior lecturer at um, Massey University in Maori history. Um, welcome, Peter. Kia ora, Ed. Good to have you. Um, so... Uh, we're going to start right from the uh, beginning. I had uh, a bit of your um, um, introduction from the website. <laughs> so uh, uh, what, 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 what can be more of an introduction of you than uh, how did you start and uh, how are you placed in academia uh, nowadays? Um, yep, so I I teach history um, at Massey University's Manawatu campus. Um, been up there, started my PhD in uh, 2008. Um, and and, and bef- bef- I've done all of my postgraduate study at up, up at Massey. Um, but I also come from a from an iwi background too. I'm I, uh, I've, I presently I sit on Te Runanga Rangitani or Waido, and prior to that I was a trustee on um, Te Runanga Ongati Queer, um, and um, yeah, I, I, I did, did quite a bit of bit of work with with Ngati Queer. So both I, I'm Ngati Queer, Rangitani, Ngati Upper through my father, um, but I Papa to Kaikoda. Uh, through my mother, she's um, she's um, Ngati Kuri or one of the Ngaitahu um, Hapu, uh, but brought up in Blenheim. I um, born in 
born and bred in Blenheim, but my uh, my parents were urban migrants, so my mum moved up from Kaikoura, and uh, uh, my father was from Canvas Town, which not many people not many people know Canvas Town. It's a very very s- small settlement uh, between Nelson and Blenheim. The the closest town that most people would know is Havelock. Um, the muscle capital of the world, at the um, at the head of the Plura Sound. Um, yeah, so I I, um, I did all of my sort of schooling here in Blenheim, my boys' college. Um, yeah, and lived lived really with uh, Blenheim's uh, Blenheim's only like 10 percent Maori, um, and like many places. Uh, Many places, um, Maori from outside of the area, Matawaka people, Tauranga people, make up the the majority of the population of 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 the Maori community. Um, but very quickly, uh, they marry into the locals. So, um, so we're kind of a melting pot here and here and here in Waido, Blenheim. Um, yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of where I and I and I, I spent I spent a lot of time in in Blenheim. Um, I commute back and forth between Palmerston North and Blenheim, and um, my research interest is my own community. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm interested in you know oral traditions and histories of the Kutahopal people, the top of the South Island. That's um, that's very interesting. So. Um, living in Blenheim, did you always think that would you be entering into this realm of um, understanding history, even taking it to the level of uh, a PhD? When did that hit you that, okay, this is my path? Um, So there's a few kind of things, events that fed into that. Um, So my... um, my my stepfather, the man who 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 kind of raised us mainly, um, he was himself um, a university graduate. So I I remember as a as a boy, my mum made my 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 father go and get his degrees put in frames and put up on the wall, and um, so um, and. <laughs> We were always encouraged in education. That was um, it was one of the um, we were always encouraged to do well at school. Um, I, I probably went the furthest in in my education, but uh, my brother and sisters have also done very well in what they do. Um, it, yeah, so that was that was one part of it. I had a very um, a very neat history teacher at Melbourne Boys College, uh, Mr. Davies, who's um, he passed away quite a few years ago now, but um, he was of uh, Sikh descent, um, and uh, he was probably the only person with with brown skin on on staff at Melbourne Boys College at that time, and um, he he. Um, he had a very he, he liked to get us out into the field so we spent a lot of time on field trips going down the Marlborough sounds walking around the walking around the, the province um, 
that kind of thing. And he he asked me one day um, what iwi I belonged to, and at that time I was fourteen years old, and I was and I was uh, at that time learning whakapapa from uncles and aunties. And so I kind of, I had a, a little bit of an understanding of our iwi and where we, you know, where that we were from. And I said to him, well, I'm rangitani, ngati kuia, ngati apa, ngaitahu. And he went out um, to the back room behind the history class and he came out with a box. And the box was full of all of these um, photocopies of old documents. And at the very top, there was a... Um, there was a census of landless landless Marlborough natives, and um, and they were listed one, two, three, four, five, all all the way through. And I I recognised many of the names because they were ancestors who I'd become familiar with through learning about Whakapapa from from Fano, and um, and I took that box home and I. And and I you know I read everything and from that point onwards I was I was I was hooked because um, you know you saw your ancestors' names there in black and white and you know when you see things like landless landless natives of Marlborough um, you kind of sparks your um, sparks your interest um, and I nineteen ninety. Uh, it was um, it was a, the commemoration of the uh, signing of um, Te Tiriti or Waitangi, and lots of events were happening around around the around the Mutu. And um, one day we had um, some people from the Historic Society come to the class and ask if we wanted to um, participate in a reenactment of the sign of the signing of Te Tiriti. And um, and I thought, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. And I, um, so come the day, we all jumped into a minivan and drive and drove from from the, the the school out to Port Underwood, and we got out there and we jumped out of the van and walked into a into one of the a, a little house with one of the locals out there lived, and they had all of these costumes, and um, I thought I might get to play. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the Maori characters, but yeah. um, I I ended up playing a whaler, um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, that's all good. I'll play, the, I'll play a whaler, and um, and his name I found out was uh, Joseph Toms, mm-hmm. and um, and a wee while later, I was I was sitting with my uncle up at his house. And um, I was telling him about it, and lo and behold, um, I was actually a descendant of Joseph Toms. Oh, <laughs> that is serendipitous. Uh, it was, and so I, and so once I was told this, I thought, oh, I'm going to go and find out about this guy, um, Joseph Toms, and it, it just so happened that um, um, Joseph Toms married a um, a Maori woman. And her her name was Te Ua. Mm-hmm. and Te Ua was the daughter of a man named Nuhurua, and Nuhurua was the brother of Tero Paraha. Tero Paraha, yes. Yeah, and so that kind of took me down that path, and and the, and I found out other interesting things about this um, Joseph Toms too. He 
he was married to um, Nohoro's daughter, and he and when the treaty was signed, Nohoro refused to sign the Tetiriti unless his Pakia son-in-law signed Tetiriti as well, because he said if his children and grandchildren um, lose their land, they would not only blame him, but they'd blame their Pakia ancestor as well. Oh. Um, yeah, so all of these all of these things really added to my interest in, in New Zealand history. Um, and later on, I when I went to uni, um, I met a whole lot of um, Maori Maori students similar to me came from um, came from small towns uh, where uh, there weren't that many Maori, mm-hmm. and of course going to uni and getting a kind of a critical mass, um, lots of other things start happening. And, becomes a community. Uh, becomes a community, and you you know you know you spend lots of time. Um, sitting and talking and sharing experiences um yeah yeah so these these were all kinds of um things that were happening and other other things happened too we um uh, at that time so this is back in the early 90s um people lots of things were happening in new zealand at that time um yeah. you, you know you had the fiscal envelope you had the uh the second Fishery settlement, sea lords. Uh, you had things like um, uh, Mike Smith um, cutting down the tree on Moga Keke up in Auckland, One Tree Hill. Uh, Pakai Tori yeah. at um, at Whanganui. and so all of these things were happening. And at the same time, I I, I was starting to read and go to lectures talking about. Um, colonization New Zealand history and and uh, those kinds of things so um, that was that was good learning because what it did was it um, it, it kind of gave my own personal experiences some theoretical underpinnings mm. and helped explain um, helped explain things in, in my mind yeah yeah it's um did you get in um even with the teachings uh, at the start did you feel a certain direction that those teachings were taking in terms of context of setting history that it starts from a- 1840 rather than a history of a thousand years before um yeah i suppose the early my the, the early education I I I received was you know, kind of colonial mm. colonial histories, but um, but at the same time, I was also um, going to our Marae and 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 learning about that that part of us as well, and um, yeah. Uh, I, su- I suppose I was really interested in colonial history because in colonization be- because of those early introductions to it like from my from my high school history teacher um, and then like I, I remember I remember one of the um, first courses I did at 
at university, and the textbook was um, Ranginui Walker's Kafafai Tonumato, which was um, published in 1990. Yeah, so, that, that was the that was a kind of a formative book for me, for my stay in New Zealand as an immigrant, and that kind of flipped the thing in my brain. Um, but it's not about me. So, oh, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, yeah. it, I, I think that book did the same thing for lots and lots of people. Mm. You know, that was that was the first, like the kind of first introduction to, um, you know, to that 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 part of our history. I got to say too, um, just bef- you know, only a couple of years before. Um, Ranginui's publication. You had, um, you know, James Balich's New Zealand Wars, Claudia Orange's uh, Treaty. Treaty of Waitangi, um, and yeah, I just, I just let let that stuff up. And I, and another person who was really, really influential, and I mean, I, I mentioned him in the book is uh, Moana Jackson. Yeah, um, he. He travelled around the country at that time, going to universities and speaking to um, speaking to um, students, Maori and Pakia. Uh, we we were lucky in that we got a we got our own audience, our own private audience, and um, and, and, and probably of anyone, it was his his writing that really I I, I really enjoyed, and just the way that. Um, he was able to explain things in the way that only Moana Jackson can. Yeah, um, that was yeah that 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 was formative as well. I think it is. Um, it, it is quite amazing. Our parts are in different timelines. It's yours is in in the nineties. Mine is in twenty twenties and twenty tens. But it, uh, for me, it was uh, Ranginui Walker. And then um, I kept reading, I started picking up the books, uh, Danny Keening's, um, uh, um, uh, the book about New Zealand wars and uh, James Belich's documentary first. And then uh, then, I, uh, then I read the book. And so I, the, then I enrolled, I, I left my job and I enrolled in the master's in indigenous studies at Auckland University. And there I found... Moana Jackson, and then it was my, half my references in all my assignments were always like YouTube videos, lectures, writings, articles of Moana Jackson. So that kind of led me to my PhD topic as well, and uh, working on the justice system and the Matikimai report. So Moana was I, I never met him, and it was such a sh- short introduction to him. And then he 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 passed away sadly as well last year. So that was a sad moment for me as well. But it's it's amazing how people um, influence um, different people. I mean, I, I'm I'm an immigrant. I came in 2010, and uh, I've been here for uh, since to since 2010. Been 12 years, but. These people have influenced me oh, as well in my journey. He's one of New Zealand's great thinkers. Yeah, no doubt. So, with the with your specific focus on Maori privilege or the myth of Maori privilege, the perpetuated discourse of Maori privilege, um, 
because it seems that you it, it was part of your it, it was a topic of your master's as well a bit yeah. of a start on there um did you uh i i'm always interested in people how they come up to a topic then obviously it becomes like a part of your life for a longer period of time once you choose a topic um what are any specific things that kind of attracted to you uh, attracted you to this line where you wanted to pick the past up and then line up the genealogy of this concept up up till now uh yeah yeah for sure so um um when i when i first started hearing these these ideas that that maori were, were were privileged and got a better deal than everybody else um i i, I was i was young and and it kind of and i when i thought about it i thought well actually my own experiences don't um don't sort of don't support that i mean for for, for me being maori when i think back to my childhood being maori was um um we i went we went to a lot of tangi mm. so <laughs> that was kind of, when i looked at what what kind of separated um uh, the whanau out from maybe our my, my pakia friends was that we seemed to go to funerals a lot mm. and we spent uh and when we talked about our cousins they were often our cousins who were like you know in pakia terms were our third and fourth cousins um and and to me that somehow didn't represent privilege yeah so 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 that so my own experiences um talk to that and then um and then when i went to um 2001 to 2004 um we had the waitangi tribunal hearings in tatoihu and at that time, um, at that time, because I was a um, single father, I had a lot of, I had some spare time on my hands, and mm. um, I had this crappy old um, Ford that kept dropping a cylinder and sounded real loud. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to take my my son to these uh, tribunal hearings, and just listening to um, historians and lawyers debate these debate issues and um, subjects and I kind of thought hey this looks um, this looks really interesting to me and so I thought I wanted to go back to university and um, and so I did a I did a the you know dissertation and then from the dissertation moved on to the MA and the MA initially because I was interested in colonization I thought I might do a comparative study between New Zealand and um, uh, and French Polynesia, mm. but what happened was I, I, I quickly realised that I didn't speak French, yeah. And so the source material uh, I didn't really have access to. So I moved on to writing about um, about uh, Ngati Queer, one of my um, iwi, their involvement in the foreshore and seabed claim. Mm. And our involvement went back to uh, 1997, um, when uh, when Tatoihu Iwi lodged a lodged a um, 
a claim in the Māori Land Court, and all that claim asked for was, um, did, um, did Māori still have rights and interests in the foreshore and seabed of the Marlborough Sounds? Hmm. That was the key question. And um, and the Crown, the Attorney General, um, um, responded and said, well, actually, the Māori Land Court doesn't have the jurisdiction to hear this case. And that case went all the way, of course, to the Court of Appeal. And then um, the Court of Appeal found that Māori... Uh, that, that the the Māori Land Court did have the jurisdiction to hear the case, and of course, then the the the, the government uh, passed legislation, which took away took that away. Yeah. And uh, I don't at that time when the claim when the Forster and Seabed um, claim was happening, um, you had people people like Don Brash, yeah. who who stood up and said, "Well, act, this here's um, this is." just examples of 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 maori privilege and i thought wow um i knew that this idea existed but at that time 2004 2005 it really ramped up um it really ramped up and i thought um where's all where does this idea come from and so that took me into the um, took me into the PhD, and so um, the PhD itself was called um, the paradox of Maori privilege, historic constructions of Maori privilege, seventeen sixty nine to nineteen forty. It's a very PhD title. Oh yeah, yeah, it's got a <laughs> semicolon and everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, so that formed the basis of the book. Yeah. That's uh, that uh, that that's great to hear. So now that you've mentioned some of the um, uh, uh, some of the concept that are in the current book as well, so let's just uh, dive uh, dive into it. Um, the my experience of that was that when I came to New Zealand, so the first thing you are hit by uh, in terms of uh, indigeneity of Maori in in New Zealand. It's it's you know it's it's through the haka, and then uh, when you start reading the news, so f- my first exposure was to these myths. So when you talk to people, so you know, I, because I was at university in Canterbury, as it's, it's, it was about um, people would talk about the scholarship, the privilege of. You know the the scholarships privilege is a very basic, uh, basic uh, uh, privilege chat that happens usually, and then it moves on to land, and then and and that kind of starts formulating your view right at the start for me because so my view was starting from the uh, a myth of myth of privilege, so my question was that how did it start in New Zealand this uh, discourse of Maori privilege. Um... So what what I did to start out with was um, there is a there's a growing body of literature which talks about the privileged Maori. And so when I read those um, when I read the books, a very clear um, very clear idea emerges. And every every one of these books is predicated 
on the same set of beliefs. And so those pretty much runs like this. Um, prior to 1840, Māori were savage barbarians killing and eating one another. Mm. These books, <laughs> that's how they always start out. Mm. Um, 1840, um, Britain comes along, and uh, Britain didn't really want to be here. They had colonies elsewhere, but... They were really um, busy. I think they, they were, were really busy. busy. They were busy in India and all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, but nevertheless, um, because Britain had a... Um, were, um, were, were the, the sort of the, the, the humanitarians and they were there to lead the world. It was very they, nice, yeah. They were very yep, nice. Yep, they gave, they, they gave Māori this treaty. Mm. And so um, from, the, from 1840 onwards, anything that the government did for Māori was deemed to be or framed as a privilege because that had to be better than anything that occurred pre-1840. And um, Māori need to be grateful for this. So we'll park that to one side. So there's a, but just to to say, there is a body of literature that talks about these things. Now, so 1840 is a key moment in the development of Māori privileged discourse. But there's another key moment as well, and that is when Māori were privileged to make the acquaintance, the acquaintance of James Cook, who mm. was the embodiment of British civilization. So Cook turns up here um, in, 18, in 1769. Um, we know, of course, through... The, Two or two fifty commemorations. It's become, you know, we know what happened when Cook gets here. But a thing to remember about Cook and other European observers is that when they came to Aotearoa, they didn't, um, they didn't come here, not knowing what to expect. They already had um, ideas and beliefs about themselves and also about the people who they were going to meet. So they were always, Britain being the most civilised of the Europeans, um, we're always going to be, um, we're always going to be at the top of this continuum of civilization, And at different places along that continuum, we're going to be placed everybody else. Mm. They, they are the apex humanitarian. That's all. Well, the, the, yeah, yeah. The, yeah the, <laughs> they they are what defines yeah. um, civilized society. Um, at the at the other end of the continuum, you had people who um, people like the Australian Aborigines, um, the people of Terra del Fuego at the bottom of um, South America, uh, and then everywhere in between, you had everybody else, and where you fit on that continuum was basically determined by your means of subsistence. So if you were a hunter-gatherer, i.e. you didn't cultivate the soil, you were at the bottom. Mm. Um, in the middle, um, so Māori, um, Māori cultivated, of course, they grew kumara. So that was a tick. Um, and others too who, who cultivated, they were... Um, but for Cook and his crew, another, another, um, what, what, 
what also made you what what also determined where you fit on that continuum was whether or not you were um beautiful oh in, in their eyes in their eyes <laughs> yeah so um the way Ma, Maori didn't get such a good um ranking good rank. yeah. no because of course we had moko yeah. and apparently we had uh, knobbly knees oh okay um so so all of these all of these things de- help determine where you were placed on this continuum and at the very top was britain because britain were um at the time um they're obviously agriculturalists um and they were also industrializing they were an industrial mm. nation and so, the prettiest yes yeah <laughs> so um so Māori were, um, we were savage, Mm. but we were a particular kind of savage. So if you we fast forward further into the 1790s, you had more more people coming to Aotearoa um, for um, trade, um, whaling, sealing, those kinds of things. And then later on, you had uh, missionaries come. And then um, in the 1830s, um, increasing numbers of, of Europeans were arriving and there was a there was a debate in Britain at the time um, about what Britain's role was in, in, in the world. And so you had a you had a, a report written in 1837 and it talked about um, it talked about how Britain, would manage its colonies, and at that time, Britain was a New Zealand Aotearoa New Zealand wasn't a colony, um, but importantly, it would be the first British acquisition after eighteen thirty seven. So the report was important in terms of um, framing policy going mm. forward. Now, some of these debates that went on in eighteen forty uh, in the eighteen thirties. Talked about um, Maori being this particular kind of savage, and this the this people needed to be protected. Um, who did they need to be protected from? Well, um, people like land speculators, people like the New Zealand <coughs> Company, and so um, when Hobson was dispatched to to seek sovereignty from Maori. Um, just prior to that, the New Zealand Company had turned up. They'd bought a whole lot of land, um, <laughs> and so once the once Hobson turns up, um, treaty is signed. Um, the treaty was seen to be um, a key in in determining uh, that that Maori were 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 privileged because Maori got a treaty. Mm. Whereas other indigenous peoples hadn't had a treaty, but that's not quite true because there were yeah. other treaties signed between uh, between colonisers and indigenous and indigenous peoples. So, um, yep. Yeah, so prior to prior to eighteen forty, Maori were what I say were intellectually privileged. Mm. Yeah, they were they were said to be you know they fit somewhere on this continuum but of course the thing to remember about that is um is they were maori weren't privileged because of any intrinsic value or worth of their own culture they were privileged because they were seen to be more 
like Europeans. Yeah, so the the yardstick was Britain itself. So they were comparing it, anyone outside of Britain to right. themselves. Yes, they were the measuring it, Yeah, Yeah, and put it in those categories or the spectrum or continuum that they had developed themselves. And um, you mentioned um, in the book that like the, the Tahitian uh, population was ranked higher and um, but I think Australian was ranked lower. So it, it is a weird uh, counting system that they had developed, but uh, that was the way they were judging people and then using that yardstick to decide if they needed saving. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the idea that Māori would be protected mm. was seen to be a privilege. And um, But then the question is, what did that protection actually mean in terms of policy? And a key here is um, Article 3. Yeah. Yeah, so Article Three of Tetiti is the is is the key here to understanding Maori privilege discourse, because by Article Three, Maori were um, afforded Her Majesty's royal protection and the same rights and privileges as British subjects. And when that was translated into policy, we can talk about this in a while. Depending, it didn't matter what the policy was, whether it was royal protection or the rights and privileges of British subjects, for Māori, what it meant was land loss. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that that, uh, neatly brings us to the different sets of privileged discourse that you have uh, discussed in the book. And um, I I wanted to talk a little bit more in detail about... uh, um, privilege of private poverty and also privilege of citizenship. For others, people would have to buy the book and read it. Um, <laughs> so I suppose the privilege of private property kind of seeps into other uh, other privileged discourses as well. Uh, so if you can uh, elaborate a, a little bit more how the, the treaty... And that privilege, the assumed privilege that, that was given to Maori at that time, then translated to disposition, dispossession and land loss until the time there was almost no land left for Maori. Okay, so um, so the privilege, I talk about the privilege of private property um, in, in this way. So it's a, one thing to remember is that... Um, is that Māori had their own system of, had their own land tenure system. Yeah. So um, land wasn't held in the way that we hold land today and fee simple title. It was, we didn't have individual title. Māori had, um, land was owned by the community. The British saw that as an impediment to Māori advancement. And, of course, Britain was here, so the rhetoric goes, was to advance Māori from their state of savagery. Now, as far as the the British were concerned, um, what held Māori back 
was their land tenure system. So ultimately, what 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 the what Britain what the Crown wanted was to convert um, Maori customary tenure into tenure recognisable by by English law. So what they had to do was take communally held Maori land, um, introduce a mechanism that would that would then convert it into individual title. And of course, that was the, the native land court. Um, so the, the ultimate goal f- is for the for the for the British, of course, was for the, for the Crown. Sorry, was to um, create brown skinned Protestant farmers. Mm. Yeah, and if Maori had um, if Maori, if individual Maori had their own piece of land, which they could then bring into production and cultivate, they would become that. Yeah. But of course the problem, the uh, one of the problems is that um, by by undermining the uh, our own our traditional customary tenure was that it also um, it also undermined tribal leadership. Um, you know the the manner of chiefs, um, and that's how it was kind of framed, right? Um, that oh, everybody can be a, everybody can be their the, their own chief of their own land. But what happened? What happened um, ultimately was that um, through the native land court, Maori lost thousands and thousands and thousands of acres. Yet at the same time, were deemed privileged. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, so for um, when when New Zealand was when when native policy in the nineteenth century, so native policy in the nineteenth century was essentially land policy because you know Maori had what the settlers wanted land. So, um, and the policy was about how to do that. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was how it was about how to. Take land which the which the crown um, described as either wasteland yeah. or idle land, i.e., land that wasn't in production, was to take it from Maori, um, and then pass it over to the settlers who would bring it into pro- into production. Um, yeah. So in in the nineteenth century, what you actually see is a is a swing, oscillating between. Um, between um, the rights and privileges of British subjects, which was the right to have um, private property, and and then and the other then the when that didn't work, i.e., land started to dry up, there would be a policy shift back the other way, where the crown would then impose crown preemption, which made the crown the the sole purchaser of of land, but. When it swung back the other way, ultimately what that meant was was that Māori continued to lose land. It was just that the crown became the purchaser rather than rather than settlers. And I suppose the other thing to to, to think about too is that how did or what initiated the policy shift? Well, when you go back and read the um, the um, 
the Hansard, you'll see that settler politicians who were trying to change policy would always go back to um, their understanding of the treaty and say, well, actually, Māori, we shouldn't have crown preemption because um, because the crown uh, because um, Māori should have the right to do with their land as they wanted, and when and then when um, the, the 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 court could no longer you know get land for settlement, there would be more debates in the in the house, and the policy would shift back the other way, mm. and. The, it didn't it didn't matter which what the policy was at the time. It was always framed as a privilege. Yeah, and it's and you mentioned it uh, the the preemption part in the, in in the in the section about uh, the privilege of, of protection. Um, also, during this time, if you are in the in the nineteenth century and beginning of the twentieth century. How do you think the discourse has developed during that time and up till now um, by the hijacking of specific um, Maori leaders and their their taking their quotes out of context, uh, especially um, Sarapi Rananata? Um, I remember reading recently about uh, the Tonga Suppression Act as well, and there was an article about how the the how it was kind of pushed forward by the by the Maori um, MPs. So I'm going all over the place. I'm talking about the the, the citizenship part as well, but I, I wanted to understand that uh, the, this this hijacking, why it happens, and and how does it help in the in the, in the propaganda of this uh, 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 perpetuity of privilege? So I think I, I so if we if we go back a little bit in in um, your question, Ed, I think many of the many of the uh, much of the rhetoric. That was developed in the nineteenth century, that was used in order to um, facilitate or uh, facilitate a policy change. That rhetoric never went away. Yep. So, um, so, and even though, even though by she's in the South Island, by eighteen sixty, much of the land had gone. So, and in the North Island, uh, that 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 land loss came a little bit later. But despite the fact that Maori were politically marginalised, rendered landless, um, we were at the same time somehow privileged. Now, in the nineteenth century, when the when all of this was much, all of this was happening. The, the the rhetoric that developed, like I say, almost became almost became part of um, well that that was where it was most firmly embedded, and it became part of the national 
culture and part of the national psyche that um, that, that that Maori were, despite all these things. And this is the paradox, right? The paradox mm. of Maori privilege mm. is that even when we were marginalised and um, rendered landless, we were still somehow somehow privileged. Um, now, I, I think a really good a really good example of this takes place um, between eighteen between 1900 and, and 1909. So throughout the 19th century, Māori were demanding that uh, that they have greater control over their own land, that they have greater control over their own communities. Well, in, in 1990, um, two pieces of legislation were passed and Māori were hoping that um, the Māori Lands Administration Act, for instance, would meet their needs. It was a compromise. Um, but a key element of, of the Act was um, the provision for to lease land. So Māori MP said, OK, yeah, we're, Māori uh, will be willing to uh, make land available for settlement under the conditions of, of, of the lease. Um, that way, Māori would still hold the freehold, but it would be put be put in, into production because that was what the settlers were demanding. Um, and what happened um, throughout the eight from nineteen hundred to nineteen oh nine, you had a campaign that was um, that was launched by opposition parliamentarians and also uh, what was known then as the um, the farmers' union, and they would go on to become federated farmers, mm. and they started to deploy arguments such as um, um, Maori landlordism. They called it was an abomination um, that we can't let Maori lease their land because that would simply make um, make um, Pakeha settlers um, the the workers, they would bring the land into production and all they would be doing is making money for the landowners and the landowners would sit around smoking tobacco and and growing lazy. And that's actually the terms they used. It is like, that was the terms they used. So Yeah, had- I've, I looked at a couple of the, um, uh, the references and then I went back and checked out the whole articles. And you're right, they exactly, they're using those exact words. And that so these the, the trope of the lazy Maori yeah. um, b- became you know it was a, it was and it's and even today right it's deployed yeah. today it's like um, um, people anything that's anything that's um, a, a, you know a Maori initiative to increase the the lived experiences of Maori. Uh, deemed by some to be a privilege, and in actual fact, it's bad for Maori because they need to stand on their own two feet. Yeah, yeah. The same things getting um, same tropes and ideas getting recycled, and and you know that they they became popular in the eighteen in the eighteen forties all the mm. way through to the eight. So it's nothing new. Um, and then you got to you know got got to ask why. And the point I make in the um, in the book is that Maori privilege is simply deployed um, to constrain Maori aspirations and, and, and Maori development. It's fu- it's a 
do you feel it's like as a form of gaslighting? Um, people use that word a lot because you know you, you're changing, uh, you're changing the um, the the truth in certain ways that the belief of the other person who's listening to that that truth um, has a different idea of it. So people who listen to um, at like recently I've been obsessed with listening to, it's not good for my mental health, but listening to Julian Bachelor, who's doing a co-governance tour um, in, in New Zealand. But it's his his tropes are exactly the same that are mentioned in, in this book, exactly the same thing that they, you know, Maori were, um, the musket wars, the cannibalism and, and the lazy, or everything comes in. And then they said they should be thankful. So it is, it is continued up till mm-hmm. now, until like last week's meeting that Julian Bachelor did. Um, so it is, it is, it is continuing, and people, yeah. people believe that world. Um, yep, because I think it's become, be, because it's become so entrenched in, in, um, in our own sense of in our own identity that. Um, they see what they deem to be Māori privilege as attacking the foundations of of the country and therefore their own their, their own identity. Um, so it's it's I I I think more and more people though uh, are coming to realise, and again I say this in the book that. Um, Māori have made an immense contribution hmm. to the development of Aotearoa New Zealand, and and you know, like I say, the greatest, I think, the greatest privilege of all is that um, that our uh, ancestors, when they signed Te Tiriti or Waitangi, opened the door for other people to come and make. Make this place their home, and it's like that's that's the greatest privilege. Mm. Yeah, but, that's absolutely correct, and that's uh, that's kind of my position in terms of being a tanga the treaty. So, what 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 justifies, or why am I here, and which direction should I take my life as as a res, responsible person to the to uh, te tiriti? And I, one thing I wanted to ask you, you you kind of bifurcated um, a concept really nicely. If you can explain it uh, for our listeners, the so there's the official privileged discourse, and then there's the the populist one. And I really love the concept. So if you if you can elaborate a little bit more on that, I I, I quite because it's uh, reading that, and then I started listening to the narratives and reading other texts. You start to kind of identify where the direction is going of a, yep. uh, a privileged discourse. Yep. So um, so I kind of reading through material, um, I could kind of see that there were there were two broad understandings of, of of privilege. So what I term as official privilege, they are the so called privileges that um, that um, manifest from from government policy, um, so any any anything that is kind of uh, written into legislation is 
I, I, that's what I refer to as a, as um, the official privileges. Now, the populist privilege, populist privilege are those ideas that are deployed to undermine the official privileges um, that come out of come out of government, and so when you when historically when people wanted to see a shift in policy, they would deploy these popular notions of privilege in order to, under, to undermine the those official privileges that that came um, out of government in order to to change to change policy. Um, and you'll see people like um, for instance uh, people like Julian Batchelor hmm. uh, is a is a classic. Um, there are many, many others as well who Richard and, Hill terms that terms anti treaties. And and you mentioned yeah. there's a great example, and I really like that. And and it led me to read a couple of articles from that time about the reaction to the uh, the protectorate, uh, the Aborigines protectorate, and that is a great example of like official privilege and yeah. the opposition to it. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, so the protectorate uh, was an office that was set up by um, by Hobson after he signed to Tiriti, set up the, the, the protectorate of Aborigines, and you can trace the protectorate office um, further back into, into British history. But wherever Britain went, they often well they often set up these 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 departments, and in Aotearoa, what their job was to do was to um, to oversee land transactions, uh, but also to acquire um, to acquire land for settlement, but to make sure that that Maori weren't um, weren't weren't diddled. Mm. And um, now they were obviously the but the the protectorate the, was ob- was obviously unpopular with others. For instance, the New Zealand Company's settlers. Mm. And so what the New Zealand Company settlers would do is um, they would complain. They would often write to they'd write to government, write to officials, uh, publish letters in colonial newspapers. And it's interesting, when they complained about the protectorate, many of the complaints that they made are very similar to the complaints that you hear today, for instance, um, aimed at the Waitangi Tribunal. Mm. You know, they, um, the Waitangi, the, the, the protectorate office, according to the, to the, to the company, encouraged misbehaviour by the natives. Mm. That um, it's a drain on, it's a drain on government funds and should be done away with. Um, all of these things. So, yeah. So that's a, and of course, um, the protectorate office was abolished. Hmm. Yeah, and um, so an early, an early example where populist privilege can be used to undermine these official privileges. Hmm. Yeah. And it's um, it is, it is fascinating to me. That, for instance, uh, the laws that were created in the early 1900s, um, the Administration Act, etc. And and there was great opposition. I mean, even Maori were not on board with it. But then you then 
even that is catered to or opposed through uh, populist uh, privileged discourse. And and that happens now as well. Like, um, for instance, um, moves which are not 100% everybody is on board, um, but then you end up uh, in a position, especially Maori end up in a position to def- defend a like a tiny step in the right direction, which has a lot of holes uh, against against this popular, like for instance, Three Waters Plan. It's not a completely watertight Tinoranga Tiratanga based plan, but then you end up with the co-governance discourse that comes from the opposite end, and then you end up defending a faulty plan against that populist sentiment. Uh, and and I, that's absolutely right. And you can imagine, um, you can imagine Maori in the in the um, in the nineteenth century. And you, you know, you get to the eighteen nineties when the Maori population has has sunk into its lowest, and um, and so weren't really in a position to to um, demand things, even though. And so we and so often it was the case that well. We are we're in this position. This is not the best for us, but at least it's something. Yeah, and so that's and you know I I remember um, I remember as a undergraduate student um, where and at, at that time people like Apirana Ngata, Maui Pomari. Um, um, to Peter Buck, they they were kind of getting a bit of a uh, because of what was happening. I think in the historiography at that time, um, people seemed to be people seemed to be co- who were cooperating with the government were were, were painted in a particular way. In a, yeah, yeah, and. You, you gotta, you gotta consider this the circumstances that they were tr- they were trying to navigate at the time. Um, you know, for for Maori MPs, hmm. uh, a, a Maori population that was that had that had de- been declining for decades, um, trying to find trying to find a pathway forward, hmm. and um, yeah. Some things were not perfect. Yeah. Um, it was. It wouldn't have been what. It wasn't. The, the, it wasn't the, what Maori ultimately wanted, but it was just what what had to. It was probably the only thing we could do at the, at the time. And then, in yeah. the end, they were being called privileged at the same time, while yeah. getting this. Uh... I think the thing for. I think the. That Maori though have um, long memories, mm. and um, you know, tr- treaty claims. People, people had been told, you know, and 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 and, and I can speak from my 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 experience, you know, fucker papa books, letters that families had kept, stories about, you know, um, grandparents. Um, Signing petitions and we, these things aren't forgotten, hmm. 
and 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 Māori could continue to use um, Ranginui's phrase "struggle" mm. without end mm. in order to in order to ultimately get to the um, get to the end. Mm. And it's also um, it's the same kind of concept around the the, the treaty claims settlement, the the general idea around Pākehā and even immigrants in within my family as well i talk to them and then they say that well well waikato tainui got their settlement so it's done well, was the settlement was for certain claims the treaty still has has to be fulfilled through time in perpetuity you know that the so it doesn't end the treaty claims fulfillment doesn't end the treaty the treaty continues plus it doesn't mean that uh, generations later another claim about the same thing is made again. So the full and final always, I feel that it is created to to shut up and sit down rather than resolving any problems in my initial assessment at the moment while I do my uh, academic journey. Well, I think, yes, yeah, some people see Tetiriti as being a transaction, whereas Māori would see the treaty as being a relationship. Yeah, the transaction. Yeah, for some people, the transaction happened, and that's it. Maori, you got, you got, you got some civilization and some law and order. There you go. That's your path. Um, but no, you can throughout the throughout the nineteenth century and into the twentieth century, you've got many examples of Maori seeking to have a relationship with um, with the crown. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. It is. We're going so much. I can talk to you about this for hours, but it, it is shown in the in the visits. Even though uh, the visits to the crown, um, visits to England by different uh, people at different times, uh, even the time here, and I always felt like, why did they? Why did they go? It was ninety nine percent chance that they would not be heard, but they went. Yeah, because their um, their parents and grandparents, yeah. as far as they were concerned, had established a relationship. Yeah, um, with um, with Britain. So great, mm. fantastic. There was it was like a, a fantastic quarter. I can, as I said, I can talk to you about this uh, forever. But people have to buy the book. We can't talk about the whole book uh, <laughs> in the in the hour that we that we have. Um, just wanted to ask you. So what's 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 next? Anything anything coming up in the future in the next year, next couple of years? Or what's next in the journey? Any new books coming out? Well, I've um, this the, the book here. Um, there's uh, I I also wrote a chapter on similar similar kaupapa, um in the book Histories of Hate that came out uh, that's come out with uh, from Otago University Press. Oh yeah, I need to get that. Um, so I'm not sure where I'll go with this. That that this co-papa. I'm I'm looking now to um, head back towards my other passion, and that's um, my iwi history. All right. Yeah. So I'll um, yeah, but the, I suppose the as the the title suggests, privilege and perpetuity. You'll see this happening over and over again. Yeah. I, I I just hope that the book p- provides people with um with some context. Mm. Yeah. And the context and the uh, 
tiny bit of background to the history of why that you might think that it's a privilege now. Then you dig deep a little bit, then you realize, oh, okay, it is a thing since the early 1800s. It's been going on since there. Or even, even from 1769, it's been happening. So um, uh, where can people find you? Are you are you on the socials? Oh, um, <laughs> no, not really. Um, um, I, I do a little bit of Facebook and I do a little bit of Instagram and, um, uh, but that, 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 that's about it. I've kind of, as far as the book goes, I've, I've left it up to the, to the good folks at Bridget Williams books. Yeah. Um, and they're awesome. They've done a really, really good job. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. And also, social media is overrated. So, um, so uh, privilege in uh, perpetuity, exploding a Pakeha myth by Peter Mehana. I would recommend everyone to get the book. It's a short read. It's a fast read, and it's an exhilarating um, and eye-opening read. And um, yeah, it's available everywhere from uh, Bridget William Books uh, website, but all all the main. Um, outlets as well if you want a hard copy um, I think soon there will be a ebook coming out uh, as well but in any case get the hard copy that's the main thing so that you have a reference book as always um, thank you Peter thank no you problem. for um, uh, talking to me um, I had a great time no problem yeah enjoyed that kia ora kia ora.